If you have a Bible, please open it to Matthew chapter 9. We'll be reading the last few verses of 9 and the first four verses of chapter 10 here in just a moment. If you need to borrow a Bible because you don't have one or to avoid, again, the distraction of using your cell phone for this, I would offer the Bible in the pocket of the pew in front of you, and you can find Matthew chapter 9 on page 764 of that Bible. Crossway, although it's named as a community church, and it is that, we are at our our core a Baptist church, and we are a Southern Baptist church at that. Missions is part and parcel of who we are and what we seek to do. This is precisely why we're Southern Baptist. And hopefully that will become more apparent as there's a push now to change the name of Southern Baptist to Great Commission Baptist, and I heartily appreciate that one because we're not in the South. I don't know if you noticed, maybe that's a wake-up call for some of you this morning, but uh, you're not going to get anything um, Southern here this morning necessarily. Um, We're not labeled Southern. Um, I don't want to be labeled Southern because it's not really brought together because of a geographic identity or some sort of outdated and poor 19th century political persuasion and sin, but rather because what defines us is indeed the Great Commission. It is the fact that we band together to take the gospel of Jesus Christ out to the lost and the dying in the world. This, frankly, is the only reason any church should be Southern Baptist, because we come together to see that missionaries are placed in foreign lands to preach the gospel. It isn't because Southern Baptist people are all so friendly and easy to get along with. It's not because we're all so level-headed and theologically consistent, but rather because we are locked in to prepare and to send missionaries out by the basis of the Great Commission and as far as we can to see it fulfilled. Together, our 47,000 churches give nearly $300 million dollars that we might fund 3,500 missionaries as full-time missionaries along with their children in the mission field. Many of these missionaries are in places where Jesus Christ has never been mentioned, has never been named. The people that they are serving around know nothing of the Bible, know nothing of the backstory. They are a people who do not have scripture, perhaps even a translation of it in their language. They have no knowledge of God's plan or even of who he is. We believe that these missionaries are doing God's work. They are called and gifted by him for that purpose, and so we're happy to stand behind them and to support them. The Lodestar passage in all of this is, of course, Matthew 28, where Jesus, having sent his disciples before him into Galilee, says that all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded with you, and I am with you always until the end of the age. But you ought not think that this passage sort of appears unprecedented out of the ether as something that was unanticipated and a post-resurrection only reality. This, this is not the case. And just last week, we, we noted how carefully Matthew seems to have organized his gospel so that Jesus truly does appear as this new Moses, both ascending a mountain to give the law in the Sermon on the Mount and performing ten miracles and signs and wonders which accord to the very work that Moses has done. But even in going back to Moses, 
the Lord's bidding for Moses to perform those miracles, to perform those plagues or those signs and wonders, was done for a very specific reason. Again, in Exodus chapter 9, a passage that we did read last week. This time, I will send all my plagues on you yourself, the Lord is speaking here through Moses to Pharaoh. This time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and on your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up to show my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. The miracles, everything that the Lord was doing here was so that the world might know who he was. That he was greater than the gods of Egypt, that he was greater than the powers of Egypt, that he was altogether stronger than anything, controlling weather, animals, light and darkness, and even death itself. Nothing is out of his control. And all would come to know that. This is mission. This is the demonstration of God's glory to the world. And Jesus seems to have been doing this, even if it was just sort of a natural consequence to his teaching and healing ministries. As he went around teaching, people were astonished. They talked about the very teachings that Jesus was given. As he went around healing, they were astonished. They marveled at the power that he had, and they went around talking about the works that this Jesus could do. But what is a natural consequence there becomes a purposeful announcement the disciples are going to take up the very task of their master. They will go out. They will do the very things that he has done. They will say the very words that he has said. They will be his image and have his authority. They will be sent on mission. The text before us is Matthew's preparatory word about missions. And if we're truly to understand what it is that we need to do and why we even do it, We need to listen carefully to the words of Jesus here. Let us do that this morning. Read with me, if you would, from Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse 35. There are the words of Matthew, says this. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And he called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. This is the word of our God. Four distinct things to pull out of here as we speak on missions. I will, oddly, I think, perhaps start at the end of our passage and work our way back up. As we do that, then, the first thing I want to point out to you is the people of missions. The people of missions. 
Matthew lists the 12 disciples by name and groups them in sort of three groups of four, which is perfectly normal. If you go through the Gospels, this is actually what happens quite often. He notes that there's a primary, a central group that consists of Simon and Andrew and James and John. We don't know much, actually, about the group. Matthew has included only five stories, basically two groups of stories of Jesus calling disciples, one of Matthew himself and then one of the fishermen very early on in the gospel. We know almost nothing about them. What can we make out of this group? Well, we don't know much, so not much, but we can, I think, pull two things from this particular grouping. First, these men are quite divergent just from what we do know of them, and, and that's very little. They, they They don't have a lot in common other than the fact that they're Jewish. They don't fit any particular mold other than their heritage. You've got a couple of fishermen who would have been ill-trained theologically. You've got somebody who is identified as a tax collector and, and kind of identified not just by their job, but by their sin. You've got a zealot who is identified by his politics and Simon at the end. These are are men who have come together who have literally nothing really in common but Jesus. This is highlighted specifically by Matthew and by Simon. Matthew, literally, in his job, was working for the Romans. Simon, being known as a zealot, the zealot's not just a nice category of person. It, It literally defines somebody who is working to overthrow the Roman government. So you've got Matthew who's working for the Roman government, and you've got Simon who's doing everything in his power to overthrow the Roman government. The two could not be more dissimilar from one another, but they do have one thing in common. They've been called by Jesus. They know Jesus. They're sent out in Jesus' authority to proclaim the good news of the kingdom. This is exactly what missions ought to do for us. We have goals. And When we are all in on that goal, the other portions of our lives can melt away. It's not that all of our differences melt away. Some of those are terribly important. If we're planting churches, then it's going to be important that we plant churches that are good, healthy churches that look as the Bible says that a church ought to look as much as possible. And that means that certain things are going to be more important. So we don't have every single difference melt away. Not every single theological position or every practical outworking But it also means that not all of those things are that important. And some of those things can indeed melt away. And we can work with people who are highly divergent from us. And this is actually what the body of Christ should look and act like. People from different backgrounds, with different affinities, different loves, and different desires, working together to promote the gospel of Jesus Christ. So first, the the people of missions are quite divergent. But second, they are incredibly uninspiring. There's just not a lot here. There's no, there's no superstar you're going to hang your hat on and be like, Peter's going to take us home. There's no one with great theological training. No one on this list who jumps out as especially gifted in anything that's probably going to be required for them here. I'm sure that John and Peter can tie some amazing fishing knots, but I don't know how helpful that's going to be in dealing with leprosy. There are no trained rhetoricians, there are no politicians, these are men with very few connections, and no one appears to be terribly wealthy. You might ask quite clearly, what do these guys have going for them? And in a word, they have almost nothing. 
But the very fact that they are uninspiring men is the very thing that ought to inspire us. The Lord doesn't think or the Lord doesn't need the things that we typically think are needed by people who are going to be great missionaries. These things typically are hindrances to it. People who are incredibly bright or wise or smart or super well-trained that they are sure of everything. People who are rich and wealthy. People who have power in the world. These are not the power or these are not the kind of people that Jesus typically uses. And not to be too insulting to you all, I won't even look at you when I say this, this is really good news for you uninspiring people, right? God, God can use you. Listen, if he can use Peter and James and John and Andrew, there is nothing special about those men that isolate them from any of you. There's nothing different about you in your nature. He didn't, he didn't wait until there was this dream team of 12 people who came together that Jesus was like, now I can really make hay. They were uninspiring. God can use you as well. God used the stuttering Moses to deliver his message to the greatest worldly power of the time. He used the humble shepherd David as the pattern of a king. He uses the crazy and odd Ezekiel to both critique and to comfort his people. God uses all kinds of people filled with problems and issues and sin to bring about his kingdom. He still does today. So friend, do not think for a minute that God cannot use you for his own good ends. Be willing and able to help. Go when he sends. Be generous with your time, and your money, and your life. And God can change the world through you. You are the people of missions. Secondly, let's speak of the tools of missions. The tools of missions. How is it that God can use such mediocre material to bring about such great results. And thinking about this, I was reminded again of, of great chefs. If you, if you talk to great chefs, if you ever watch anything to do with food, you realize that the very first thing that they're going to talk about is in order to cook fabulous meals, you have to have fabulous ingredients. No chef in this world is good enough to show up at my house to take my week-old loaf of bread that's half gone and just the kind of junky wheat stuff you buy, it's not even fancy stuff, right? A package of already opened turkey of questionable integrity and a bottle of yellow mustard and is making a sandwich that people are going to stand back and say, wow, wow. They're going to stand back and say, I could have done that. There's absolutely nothing a chef's going to do with that that you couldn't do with that. How is it that God does this with us? He uses those ingredients and he makes wondrous things from them. This is all chalked up to the very gifting that God gives to them. Jesus, according to the words used by Matthew, gives them the very gifts and abilities that he himself has. The wording of verse 1 here where it says, he was sent out, he cast them out to heal every disease and every affliction is exactly what it says in verse 35, that Jesus went around healing every disease and every affliction. He gives them the exact same authority, the exact same power that he himself carries. It is the gifting of God that allows mediocre people, uninspiring people, to do wonderful, grand, good things for the Lord. The disciples are given his authority. They can do as he did. Our problem with disease is not just power. It's not that we are under its thumb. It's that we don't have authority over it. 
We are dead in our trespasses. We are sinners in our souls. And therefore, we've lost the ability to be master over diseases because we are slaves to sin. And disease is nothing but the bodily working out of that sin. But Jesus has that authority. And he provides that very authority to his disciples. So the disciples will go out. And they will indeed, in the name of Jesus Christ, begin to heal various diseases and cast out demons. Their authority is not their own. They did not take it for their own, but the Lord has given it to them. Why does Jesus use you to accomplish his ends? It's an amazing thing that he desires, and even even that he can do this. I mean, we're talking about the central problems of the world. We're not talking about global warming, as entrenched as that might be, or nuclear proliferation, as troubling as that might be. More a home, perhaps the curtailing of our liberties, as infuriating as that might be. Not even something like human trafficking, which is the most evil and wicked thing that might be. The very source and the center of it all. It's, it's talking about our sin and our disease. The thing that leads to all of the other evils in the world and the eventual end of that thing. These men who are able to mend nets, to count money, to sharpen swords, are going to be used to drive back the very gates of hell. They will be used to send demons flying and heal leprosy and blindness and herald the coming of the kingdom. This can only be done by the power of God. Here, summed up in that short phrase, Jesus gave them authority. It is not that man prepares himself for this work of the kingdom. It is that God prepares him, and that is what matters. If the call of God is upon you to go and harvest, do you not think that he will provide you with the tools necessary to do the job? God will not call you and leave you bereft of the tools that you need to do and accomplish the very thing that he's called you to do, because he's faithful. He will always provide. It's worth noting that the gifting here in chapter 10 is far different from what we see in Matthew 28. That call, the final one in the gospel, seems to be the final calling of of all of God's people in what they are to do. This is the final push of missions. That is not what we have here. This one seems intentionally limited in time and in person and in scope. In time, because it's clear that although this was a particular mission, it sort of ends. We don't have any data to to back that up. There's nothing in the gospel that you can really point to that says that their ability to do these things came to an end. But given the fact that the crowds are going to be, be piling into Jesus for healing, even when the disciples are there, they're not going to the disciples and asking for the disciples to heal their lame legs and to heal their muted mouths. But they go to Jesus for it. It seems as though this was a very limited gifting for them. It's limited in persons because the only people given this ability are the 12 disciples, although Jesus by this time certainly had more, and we know that he had women following him as well that were not gifted this way. And it's certainly limited in scope because as we will see, if you wait for next week or even have your eyes glance down at verse 5 of this week, they are not to go out to all of the world. They are only to go to the houses and the villages of Israel. So this particular giftedness, the tools that are being handed out, are here for this particular mission and don't seem to be the same ones that we get in Matthew 28, which seem to be centered around making disciples, baptizing, and teaching. 
It's important to note that as far as teaching goes, that is a specific gift given to certain people within the church. But the other two, baptizing and teaching, or excuse me, baptizing and making disciples, that is something that the entire church is meant to do. That, that especially making of disciples is something that is handed over to all of us. We are all gifted to do this. We are all called to do the work of the ministry in Paul's wording of Ephesians chapter 4. That is no less a gift to the church than is the gift of healing. For just a second before we move on, let's ask a very specific question of why here Jesus lists authority in healing, but not authority in teaching. Because it's clear one of the things that stood out was that he had authority in teaching. And they are going to go out, and he will send them out to teach as well as to heal. So why is it that that sort of authority isn't named here and listed here? I think there is a very, very good reason for it. It's very simple. It's just emphasis. It's not that they're going to go out and simply proclaim the kingdom is coming, because I think that the kingdom is coming was sort of the summary statement for the broad teaching of Jesus that we already went through in the Sermon on the Mount. I think that the disciples are going to go out, and when they teach people, they're going to be teaching them basically the tenets of the Sermon on the Mount. What Jesus wants to highlight is not simply that you are going to go out and teach in my name, but that you're going to go out and do these good things in my name. To think that we, even today, are on mission only to proclaim the goodness of the kingdom of God and not to do good things is just as blind and stupid as liberal churches thinking that the only thing they're out there to do is to dig wells. It's not what we've been sent to do. We've been sent to do both. We've been sent to be helpful and handy, to be good to people, to give cups of cold water and food to people when we can, to dig wells and to tell them of the living water that those wells could never, ever hold. We are always to do both. And while we haven't necessarily been gifted with miraculous powers, we don't need to be. We are called to teach, to baptize, to disciple, to help others in love. And God is indeed the one who gives us the tools for that mission. Third, let's talk as we work up now into chapter 9 about the fuel for missions. The fuel for missions. What is it that will drive missions to be accomplished? What do we need to do? Obviously, in Matthew 28, we need to disciple, baptize, and teach. And here, they're going to heal the sick, and they're going to cast out demons, and they're going to proclaim the kingdom. But what do we need to do to make that stuff happen? What do we need to do for the mission that Christ has given to us? We know the answer to that question, and we seek to do it here. We understand well that if the harvest is ready, we need to send out workers if we send out workers, then people need to go. And that they, in going into the fields, will need to be taken care of. And so people need to give. And so we, we know the answer to the question. And sometimes we go straight to that answer. But Jesus, Jesus gives us a completely different take. He doesn't say, the fields are ready to be harvested, so go. Even to these men that he's about to send out. He doesn't say, the fields are ready for harvest, so give that others might go. But he says, indeed, 
pray. Pray that there will be workers sent out into the field by God. Missionaries are not just those who sort of like the idea of missions, who feel like they are the type of people, whatever that type might be, who go on missions, or who have the worldly things necessary to be on mission. But rather, they are those who are sort of thrown out by God. This word, send out, is the same word that is used by Jesus, or used by Matthew, repeatedly when Jesus casts out demons. Jesus stands before a demon-possessed man or woman, and he orders and commands that the demon come out of that person. And the demon dutifully does so because he's the Lord of glory. And what we are praying for is that same sort of dutiful obedience would be found in God's people, that God would look at people and put upon them a claim that says, you are to go out into the world and proclaim the goodness of my name to a lost world, to a lost people group, to a lost country, to a lost city. People would be compelled by the very Spirit of God to do this. Prayer is how we handle that. It's prayer is how we, we have to handle the obscene numbers of people who do not know Christ and have no access to him. Unreached in missions terminology typically refers to populations that are less than 5% Christian. And when we say 5% Christian, we mean anybody who would raise their hand if you said, are you a Christian? Which would include people like Roman Catholics. And, and, less than 2% evangelical. If you take that sort of understanding, unreached peoples make up about 7,391 people groups. That is, a people group is a common language, a common dialect, and common cultural concerns. There's a huge number of people groups in this world. 7,391 are unreached. That comes out to nearly 34 billion people. That, that's only the unreached people groups. That's not talking about all of the lost in the world. How, how are we going to reach them? These people have little chance of hearing about Christ who are unreached. They have little opportunity to find him even if they wanted to and almost no one to tell them about him if they're sent. How do we get to them? We are quick to make plans and to strategize, to impel and to call and to go, to give. But Jesus says that there is something vastly more important that we are to do. We're to stop and we're to pray. It could be that for all of our strategies, God already has one. And for all of our plans, God's is already ready to go. That for all of our conjoling and imploring people, God's Spirit is already set and ready to stir up those who are going to be sent. That for all of our going, God is already preparing to cast out. Pray, therefore, to the Lord of the harvest. And I'm all for doing that as a matter of obedience. And sometimes doing things out of strict obedience gets really poor reviews in Christian circles as though duty is something to be done with a cold heart that God despises. I have no doubt that God wants us to be passionate about things and press them dearly before us, but obedience is good. If you can't muster passion about something, muster obedience. 
I'm all for that. But it is worth noting here that Jesus doesn't quite just simply ask us to pray. It's not the normal word for prayer. It's a somewhat more emphatic word. And I think the ESV is perfectly right here to say that this is just more than prayer. It is earnest prayer. You are to pray earnestly. Pray with passion, with emphasis, with earnestness. We are to be moved in the passion of our prayer for the nations so that God would send out missionaries to them. It is our duty to pray, but it ought to be our desire to do so as well. We are to love them enough. People whom we have never met and never likely will in this life, people who we will never see, baptisms that we will never witness, that will only be reported to us as mere numbers, and yet, even though we will have no connection with these people, we are to love them fiercely enough that we would pray with earnestness that God would compel people out into the harvest. This is the fuel of missions. Lastly, let us speak of the reason for missions. The reason for missions. Missions requires a great deal out of us. It does take up a large sum of our money. Here, we give 10% to these sorts of causes. But not only 10% of our income, we also take up Annie Armstrong in April. We take up the Lottie Moon offering in December. These are both offerings that are above and beyond what we normally give so that we can see churches planted in the United States and in Canada so that we can, we can fund international missionaries going out for full-time ministry around the world. It takes up a lot out of us and our time in prayer and consideration and even for many, time that they would spend overseas. This, if done right, is going to take some of your children overseas. We better understand why we ought to do it. Now, at the one level, the easiest reason for knowing why we are to do it is because Scripture has said you ought to do it. And that's a really good reason let me say that very clearly. When Scripture tells you to do something, it is a good idea to do that thing, right? So no matter what it happens to be, if Scripture impels you, if Jesus tells you to do this thing, you ought to do it. But especially important is when Scripture then tells us the reasons why we ought to do things. We ought to listen to it. John Piper, in an excellent book on, on missions called Let the Nations Be Glad, has this phrase that missions exist because worship doesn't. Missions exist because worship doesn't. It's a nice, pithy, quotable, memorable, and I think scriptural understanding of why missions exist. The idea is that because the worship of God is not universally formed around all of the world and what he is doing is calling worshipers to himself, that, that is the reason why missions doesn't exist, because there are people in this world that do not worship the one true and living God, and we are to call them to that worship. I like this answer. I think that it's a good and right way to think about missions. Some, however, might think that God wanting people to come into his kingdom solely so that they would praise and worship him is a bit self-centered and jealous of God think that that's a half-hearted critique of it. We know better. If you've been here for any sort of time, you've heard me pray for our good and for your glory, for the good of God's people and for the glory of God. 
These are not separate things. They are the two rails on which all of the train runs. They work together. God's glory is our good, and our good is God's glory. Jesus, of everyone in the world, knows this. He himself exists in the wonder and the glory of God. He knows the lavish love and joy, the pleasure and the goodness of being in God's glory, of knowing God's glory, of standing in it, of expressing it even himself. So what happens when something of that glory, someone who knows how good that glory is and how wondrous that glory is, comes in contact with people who do not know that glory? Matter of fact, it's not just that they're ignorant of the glory, but they, in sin, turn away from the glory. They don't want the glory. They exchange the glory for things that are unglorious, for worldly things, for for worshiping things like money and sex and and all of the, the evils of this world. They've turned away from God. They've turned away from Jesus. They've turned away from the very thing that kind of impels Jesus forward for lesser things. What does he do when he sees these people? Does anger flood him? Does righteous wrath flow through him? Do do threats and admonitions come quickly to his lips? The answer is no. Precisely for the reason that he knows the glory of God. That's not what happens. Because he knows the glory of God and because he sees these people so clearly and knows them so well, That's not what floods him. What floods him, what overwhelms him, in a sense, is compassion, it's pity, it's mercy, it's love. Why do we do missions? Why does Jesus do missions? He does them because he loves people. Because he has compassion on people. If you've ever truly been around a drug addict, somebody who is addicted to any sort of drug, if you've ever seen them ragged and aged well beyond their years, their body ripped and torn by those drugs, their mind vacant, their will shattered, you probably several responses to something like that. For many who are personally known by them who are typically family members. They've got to deal with the acts of those who are addicted. We've got to deal with the lying and the stealing, with the recklessness that this person shows. It can be frustrating and it can be annoying and it can anger them. When we think of those who intentionally profit off the destruction of lives like that, righteous anger ought to sort of bring up the bile in our throats But if you've ever really been around one, the most immediate response is just pity and compassion. It's a horrible state to be in. Think of the righteous parents, not fully perfect in front of God, nevertheless striving to do what is right, who watch their child slip into that. I think the mother and the father feel about their child in that situation. Every mother who has had to see her beloved careen into that 
pit, every father who has shouldered the responsibility to care and nurture his offspring, those two bearing the brunt of that sin as much as any two people on this earth, what do they think of when they see their child? They don't think of sin first and foremost. They don't think of hell first and foremost. They certainly don't think, I can't wait till the wrath of God is visited upon you. They likely think back to that child when they were younger. They think of the waste of talent, the sort of infectious laugh of their child when they were young, the quick wit, the carefree smile. They think of all of the, the possibilities that they knew were in this child's future wasted. They're filled with pain, grief, sorrow, and pity. You are addicted. People here, Jesus sees, are addicted. They're slaves to sin. They can't break out from it. They go back to it time and time again. So when Jesus sees them, when the Father sees them, it is compassion that he has upon them. It's pity. Matthew here uses two words to describe such sinners. First, they are harassed. They're bullied, bothered. They're worn down by the world. It's a world that continually tells them that there are wrong things in this world to desire, but you ought to desire them. And here's the way that you ought to desire them. Continually leading them down wrong paths. It's a world that holds out impossible standards for these people and then crushes them when they can't reach it. It's a world that is terribly exacting in its standards and unforgiving in its punishments. They are harassed and they are hopeless. This is a weird word, honestly. I do at times complain about how the ESV translates stuff. I don't know exactly what they should have done with this word. Most translations go with the word helpless. An older version of the Holman Christian Standard Bible used the word dejected, which I kind of like. The interesting thing is it's not a rare word. If you look up the Old Testament, the Greek here is used some 78 times in the Old Testament, but it has this oddly specific use. It seems that it is, in the most simple terms, a term of throwing, which is also interesting given how many times casting out and throwing is being used here. They are thrown. But if we said they're harassed and thrown, that wouldn't make any sense to us. So we can't translate it that way. But the interesting bit is the thing that is almost always associated with the throwing. Almost every time it's used in the Old Testament, not every time, almost every time it's used in the Old Testament, is used of dead bodies that are cast aside. Or somebody who is supposed to be dying cast aside to die. Something that you do with bodies that you don't care about, that you don't... You don't want to protect their bones. You don't want to show them honor or respect. You just discard them. It's used of Joseph when his brothers throw him into the pit as though he were dead. It's used of the baby boys in Exodus when Pharaoh tells them to be cast into the Nile. 
It's used then of the Egyptian army when the Lord throws them into the Nile. It's used of Sisera thrown down on the ground with a tent peg in his head. And on and on and on throughout the Old Testament. Helpless is one way to describe it. Dejected is another. Maybe discarded is perhaps better. They are thrown aside. They're discarded. The world uses these people. It abuses them. It harasses them. And then it discards them. It, as it were, chews them up and spits them out. It treats them as worthless and as meaningless. As though the value of their life was just the sort of weird combination of carbon that happened to come together, and whatever that carbon might be worth. But Jesus refuses to see them that way. He sees them carrying with them the image of God, and he loves them. He doesn't see them as just a byproduct of this world. He doesn't see them as people that are to be discarded with a shrug of the shoulder. And he notes the problem accurately. The problem is that there aren't good leaders for people. There's no one to steer the people rightly. They are sheep without a shepherd. There are indeed shepherds that have been appointed, but those shepherds have been worthless and meaningless. And and Jesus is going to eventually come around to dealing with them. But that is precisely what we then are offering to people. We're offering them a good shepherd. One who will lead them into good pastures, who will lead them to rich waters, who will lead them to comfort and peace and safety, who will, if need be and needs are, lay down his life for us, that we might live. That's precisely what Jesus does. He sees sheep without a shepherd, and he is going to lead them. He will care for them. He will guide them. He will love them. He will do everything that he needs to do to make sure that they get safely home. That thing is to die on the cross for us. It is to die for our sins. It is to be resurrected that we might have life before God. Jesus is our good shepherd, and that is precisely what we go out to proclaim to people. God loves these wandering sheep. He loves them. He has compassion on them. He wants what is best for them. This is nothing more than the glory of God. It is the goodness of God. It is God's glory given to them. It is working for them. It is protecting them. It nourishes them. It is nothing more than the gospel itself and all that that entails. John said to us in 1 John, we love because he first loved us. And that means, most obviously, that our love, no matter how fervent it is, is not something that springs up or wells up from our own being. But it is, it is caused by God loving us. Once we experience, we realize the great love that God has for us, truly understand that. Our love for God and for others is ignited and fueled. But this also means that the cause should indeed bring about the effect. That his love for us must impel our love, not just for him, but for others. Our love is in essence a demonstration of God's love for us. Those who are forgiven, forgive. Those who are shown great mercy, demonstrate mercy. Those who have been loved, show love. We are insignificant specks on a vast timeline where our deeds 
And all that we do will be remembered for the shortest span of time. And yet God has called us to do this great thing. He has equipped us. He has moved in us to bring about his great purposes. And why? That all in all, God's love might be center to all things. He loves us so that we love him. He loves us so that we love others, just as God loves those others. God's glory is his love, his compassion, and his care for his people. And those of us who stand in that love and out of that love speak of that love to the lost and the hurting, to those who are angry and tired, to the hopeless and the broken, to those wallowing in sin and ignorant of the fate that awaits them outside of God. We do this because we have been loved. Missions reminds us of God's love for us. Missions forces us to follow Christ and allows us the great pleasure of living like him. So we do missions for our good and for God's glory. Missions exist because worship doesn't and all the good that that entails. Missions exist because God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Missions exist because we so loved must love others. Let's pray. Our God, help our cold love to be inflamed by your word this morning. Give us a renewed pleasure in speaking of your good news to others, that your love might be proclaimed to all in this world. Bring those shepherdless sheep under your kind protection and care. And give them comfort and peace against the dangers of this world. May the glory of Jesus Christ, his work on the cross, the good news that has been brought to us, that our God has cleared our debt. By his own hand, he has made a way for us to be reconciled to him. May that be known far and wide this morning, that your glory might be seen and good would come to your people. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.